Welcome back to 10 Blocks. This week's special episode features audio from a Manhattan Institute event cast discussing Classified, the Untold Story of Racial Classification in America, a new book by David E. Bernstein. Bernstein, a law professor at George Mason University's Antonin Scalia Law School, was joined by Manhattan Institute Paulson Fellow Glenn C. Lowry, William M. Van Cleve Professor of Law at Washington University, Adrienne Davis, and Manhattan Institute Senior Fellow and Director of Constitutional Studies, Ilya Shapiro. We hope you enjoy. Good afternoon, and welcome to the virtual Manhattan Institute for this forum about a timely new book. I'm Ilya Shapiro, Director of Constitutional Studies, a new area of focus for MI. I'm delighted to be at this dynamic organization working for what I consider to be our elite office in Falls Church, Virginia. I'll actually be visiting our headquarters in New York for the first time next week, ahead of an event we're holding to preview the new Supreme Court term. But turning to the topic at hand, Americans are understandably squeamish about official racial and ethnic classifications. Nevertheless, these classifications are ubiquitous in American life. Applying for a job, mortgage, university admission, citizenship, or government contract involves checking a box indicating whether one is black, white, Asian, Hispanic, or Native American. In an increasingly diverse society with high rates of intergroup marriage, the American system of racial classification is getting even more arbitrary and absurd. With rising ethno-nationalism threatening democracy around the world, it's also dangerous. In his new book, Classified, The Untold Story of Racial Classification in America, David Bernstein argues that it's time to consider abolishing official racial box checking and thus do what he calls separate race and state. David is here to discuss the book, and I'll now introduce him along with our two commenters, Glenn Lowry and Adrian Davis. First, our author is a university professor and the executive director of the Liberty and Law Center at the Antonin Scalia Law School, which is part of George Mason University. David has written dozens of law review articles in several books, including Rehabilitating Lochner and You Can't Say That, The Growing Threat to Civil Liberties from Anti-Discrimination Laws. David also contributes to several blogs, most notably The Volokh Conspiracy. Most importantly, he got his professional start as an intern at the Manhattan Institute. After David speaks, we'll have Glenn Lowry, who is a Paulson Fellow at MI, and the Merton P. Stoltz Professor of Economics at Brown University. Glenn's work focuses on affirmative action in the Black family, and he's among America's leading critics writing on racial inequality. Indeed, he's one of America's leading public intellectuals. And our second commenter is Adrian Davis, who is the William M. Van Cleve Professor of Law at Washington University, St. Louis, where until recently she was also Vice Provost for Faculty in Institutional Diversity. She also holds courtesy appointments in the departments of African and African-American studies, history and women and gender and sexuality studies. Thank you so much for joining us. David, the floor is yours. Let's hear about your book. Thank you, Ilya. So uh, as Ilya mentioned, we all sort of check these boxes. We enroll our kids at school or apply for a job or for a mortgage or get a COVID vaccine. And we sort of don't really think about the classifications that we're checking and why they're there. And I think most of us, think that these classifications sort of arose kind of spontaneously, they're kind of informal, and you could put down sort of whatever you want and no one ever checks. And as far as how often anyone you know really checks whether you've checked the right box or not, that's true that that's kind of rare. But the other two things aren't true. Modern classification norms are not spontaneous and they're not informal. Those boxes that are checked are based on a obscure government rule known as Statistical Directive Number 15, which is maybe the most significant federal federal regulation that you likely have never heard of. And I have to say, I had never heard of it until I started doing uh, this research a few years ago. The Federal Office of Management and Budget, or OMB, enacted this rule in 1997, primarily because government agencies, especially those enforcing civil rights laws, which were relatively novel at the time, uh, were receiving data from different agencies and sub-agencies that used different classifications and different definitions of those classifications for different American ethnic and racial groups. For example, I've counted at least eight, and I think I might have even gone as high as 11 different ways that government agencies define the group 
we now call Hispanic. So government agencies found themselves basically uh, comparing apples and oranges. The data was not consistent. When OMB published the rules in the Federal Register, they warned very specifically and explicitly that these classifications were not scientific or anthropological in nature and were not to be used to determine eligibility for government programs. The classifications therefore attracted very little public attention and almost no public controversy because they were not seen as especially consequential. Nevertheless, the classifications soon spread by government dictate to all aspects of American life, uh, in part because like educational institutions, banks, et cetera, everyone was required to gather the data, uh, you know, whether you're Hispanic, whether you're African-American, so forth. And that's the data that's available. So it's like the drunk guy looking for his keys under uh, the, um, the, the the light because that's where uh, that's where the light is. That's where you can see things. Well, if you're a researcher, whether you're doing scientific research, social science research, whatever you're doing, the data you have available is the data that's easy to get is what the government already collects based on these statistics. So my book goes into the history of these classifications, how they are defined by the government, because there are official definitions, although oddly they are almost never provided to the people who are supposed to check the boxes, how they are enforced when there's a controversy over someone's racial status and it has legal consequences, and how they wound up being such an important part of our society. But rather than summarizing the book, uh, uh, which would be hard to do uh, really competently in the time I have, I thought I'd just go through a few interesting things I learned in writing the book that could help spark uh, discussion. One issue that comes up immediately that we don't normally really think about very often is, again, these, this data was um, collected primarily to enforce civil rights laws initially. So why do we only classify by race or by Hispanic ethnicity, but not by religion, national origin, or other protected classes under the 14th Amendment and the civil rights laws? Now, part of it was a sense that race was the most important divide line in American society, but there's also a practical reason that I didn't really even realize how important this was till the very end of my research. The federal government started requiring employers to classify their employees in the 1950s when President Eisenhower enacted executive orders prohibiting discrimination by government contractors. But at the time, employers were really discouraged and in many states weren't even allowed to ask employees their race or religion or national origin. That was considered discriminatory to even ask. So the only way you could document your compliance with civil rights policies was to count up your visible minorities. You could generally, with some margin of error, tell who quote unquote looked black or looked Asian or to a large extent even looked Hispanic, uh, again, with a, maybe a larger margin of error, but you couldn't really tell who was Polish or Italian or Jewish or Catholic. So it just became by default the visible minorities that we count and not uh, the less visible minorities. The Directive 15 classifications, meanwhile, once they we got going in the 70s were invented in the most haphazard way you could possibly imagine. It's really remarkable that something that things that had so much effect on American society were done in such a slipshod way. So just for example, how do we get the classification Hispanic? No one in the United States called himself or herself Hispanic in 1970. Hispanic referred to like Spanish origin literature like Cervantes or whatnot. But what happened is the government asked for, they had a committee to make these classifications. They asked for three volunteers. They wanted one Cuban American, one Puerto Rican American, and one Mexican American. Uh, they got three volunteers. They put them in a conference room for a few months and told them to come up with a new classification for people of Spanish speaking origin and the definition. After months of disagreement and without consulting any experts on really anything, they came up with Hispanic. They eventually reached an agreement on that defined as of Spanish culture or origin. They could have just as easily, for example, defined the classification as Latino, which would have excluded people, excluded people from Spain, but included people from Brazil. Instead, they did the opposite. So if you're from Brazil, you're not Hispanic, but if you're from Spain, you are. Uh, and that's just because of the way the committee decided uh, without any real input from anybody to uh, use the phrase Hispanic as opposed to Latino. And there are other choices that they were considering as well. To take another example of the haphazardness, in the early 1970s, when the government defined groups uh, in its internal and external documents, they usually included South Asian Americans, Pakistanis, Indians, so forth, as white. And that's how the draft of the Directive 15 rules classified them. But there was a small Indian American lobbying group that had just sort of started a year or two earlier that objected. And no one else really cared that much. There were very few Indian Americans in the United States. So South Asians were moved to the Asian classification. 
if the Director 15 classifications have been made a few years earlier before this particular lobbying group had existed, uh, we would now consider South Asians officially to be white. Another interesting point is that the classifications are inconsistent in how they define the different classifications. For example, American Indian is defined by having cultural affinity with an Indian tribe. Black or African American is defined by being descended from one of the black races of Africa. Asian is, is defined by being uh, de descended from the original peoples of Asia, so it's geographic. And Hispanic is uh, defined by culture and language. So when I, I sometimes give people quizzes, like which group do you think this uh, this national origins in? And they never could figure it out because even if they figured out how like the Asian classification works, that won't work for Hispanic or for African-American. Uh, another interesting thing I came across doing the book is that uh, while race in practice is a matter of self-identification, no one's really checking up on you, there are occasional cases that have really not been discussed anywhere else until my book. Uh, that involve people being challenged on their self-identified race. Usually this comes up when there's a question whether a business owner is qualifying or not for affirmative action preferences in government contracting as a minority business enterprise. And I could talk more maybe during the Q&A period about how these cases work, but what really disturbed me about some of these cases is that the way courts went about deciding whether someone's really Hispanic or really Asian or whatnot, there's a really striking and disturbing resemblance to the so-called race trials of the pre-civil rights era when people were determining uh, via litigation whether someone was really black or really white or whatnot. Ariella Gross of USC has a very good book on this. Another thing that really was a novel thing as I was working on the book is that while I knew that conservatives were skeptical of racial classifications by the government, as they tend to be skeptical of government in general, the left increasingly has expressed its own concerns with our classification. People on the left increasingly speak of BIPOC instead of people of color, anti-blackness instead of racism, and they're trying to emphasize, I think correctly, at least as far as the emphasis goes, the special restrictions and violence that African Americans faced that other groups like Hispanics and Asians that are mostly composed of post-1965 immigrants have generally not. There's also increasing discussion whether it makes sense to have African and Caribbean immigrants in the same category as descendants of American slaves, whether Hispanics of European descent should be classified as members of a minority or as white like other people of European descent, uh, whether South and East Asian Americans belong in the same classification, and whether Middle Eastern Americans should have their own classification. Another point that came up is, and I have a whole chapter on this, maybe the most shocking material of the book to me, uh, and I had no idea about this previously, is that in the 1990s, Congress passed legislation requiring the National Institutes of Health and the Food and Drug Administration to use, to, to make their regulated industries, biopharmaceutical companies and so forth, use uh, racial classifications in when they're figuring out their research subjects, then break up the data by how many African-Americans and what the effects were and so forth. And surely you might think that, and the, the, the data, the, sorry, the laws did not tell them what groups to use. They just said, make sure you cover minorities to make sure that people have confidence in the studies and that they are scientifically valid for all groups. So you might think that NIH and FDA would have gathered geneticists, sociologists, anthropologists, and other experts together to figure out what groupings would actually make sense from both a scientific perspective and also for public confidence, but you would think wrong. I suppose to avoid political controversy over figuring out their own racial definitions and whatnot, the agencies just use these Directive 15 classifications over both the strong objections of, of almost every scientific commenter uh, on this when they propose doing so, and also over the fact that when OMB promulgated Directive 15, they pointed out very explicitly, these are not scientific classifications, and yet they're being used in scientific research. And the result has been what I think is a really pernicious racial essentialism in scientific research that helps spread to medical practice. It has not only no scientific grounding, it's essentially junk science. Like, what does it mean to say that Hispanics are a class for scientific purposes. They, they don't, they're not even a crew proxy for genetics, given that Hispanics could be African, they could be uh, European, they could be indigenous, they could be Asian in origin. They're just like, it's like saying American. It has no scientific meaning at all. And meanwhile, all the money that the uh, companies have to spend making sure they have enough minority groups to satisfy FDA and NIH has actually inhibited them from using that money instead to look at actual genetics uh, and 
it's also, uh, uh, I think, helped lead to, not even lead to, entrench pre-existing racial stereotyping in medical practice. After all, if the government says that it matters whether someone's black or Hispanic or Asian or whatnot, why shouldn't it matter, for research, why shouldn't it matter to medical practice? Although 99.9% of the time, it really doesn't. Uh, anyway, uh, the reason we have these classifications uh, is really out of a sense that we need to classify people to ensure justice, which is surely a fine instinct. But I do fear the government itself, by inertia, backed by some academics uh, who have an ideological proclivity in this direction, implicitly assume that racial divisions that have existed historically in the United States are inevitable and permanent. So we really will need to classify people forever to make sure that each group is getting its fair share and whatnot. But I think this is too pessimistic. I think you can make a case about how much progress has been made on race, in particular in the United States, just for example. Uh, not only is there a lot more interracial marriage now than there used to be, the approval of it has gone from four, that's one digit, 4% in 1958 to 95% today. But we could take heart in the way that uh, other societal cleavages have gone away. Just to give you an example, in 1960, there was some serious question about whether JFK could be elected president, given anti-Catholic sentiment in the U.S. And in fact, he only won because many Protestants who normally voted for Democrats wouldn't vote for him. But then many Catholics who normally voted Republican switched because their guy was uh, running and they wanted to see a Catholic in office. If you have told people in 1960 that we have a Catholic president, Catholic Senate uh, Speaker of the House, six Catholic justices on the Supreme Court, plus a Jewish Senate majority leader, plus another Jewish justice on the Supreme Court, so only two Protestants, it's been down to zero, I think, recently, and that would, not only would we have that, but it wouldn't really elicit any raised eyebrows or even much less any controversy, I think people would have been extremely dubious that that's even possible. So I think, um, you know, we, we're, I'm hopeful that race, you know, 50, 60, 100, whatever, sometime in the reasonably near future that we'll see race the same way, just like my kids think it's dick, dick ridiculous anyone ever cared whether the president was Catholic or um, or Protestant. I think I'm hoping, I'm hopeful that we'll eventually have a multiracial, multi-ethnic American identity where no one will care what the racial or ethnic background of the president is either. And uh, I'm hopeful that law will actually encourage that trend rather than uh, lead us in the other direction. Thank you. Thanks very much for that, David. We'll now hear from uh, Glenn. Okay, well, happy to be invited. Uh, terrific book, David. I uh, learned a lot from uh, perusing it. Um, and it put me in uh, a somewhat radical cast of mind as I, as I was thinking about it. I, I could not shake the thought, okay, look at this mess that we have here with uh, classification, inconsistencies, incoherence, uh, arbitrariness, uh, and so on. Why is the government in this business? And I uh, couldn't shake the thought that, well, the government's in this business uh, because it is concerned about equity in terms of identity groups, racial identity groups, and that the demand for classification and government action is uh, downstream from the underlying uh, project of uh, seeking racial equity uh, seeking uh, equality of citizenship defined in racial terms, and uh, wondered whether or not some of the uh, uh, problems uh, with our systems of racial classification couldn't be, uh, uh, to some degree, uh, mitigated by backing off from that project. Um, it strikes me that there's certain inescapable conflicts or contradictions that are built into the project. Uh, so, for example, if I announce to firms that uh, I'm looking for suspicious patterns in your employment practices that would be indicative of racial discrimination, I incentivize firms to produce innocuous patterns in their employment uh, 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 data so as to avoid uh, government scrutiny, and therefore the the project of forcing firms to not discriminate carries with it inexorably not only a need for classification, but also uh, a, an incentive for firms to look as if they're not discriminating, which might require them, <laughs> uh, ironically, to engage in reverse discrimination. Or I think if the fact of racial disparity in 
aggregate social outcomes triggers uh, a project, a, a project of amelioration of that disparity, uh, that uh, it, if, if it does so inexorably, if it does so as a political necessity, uh, if people run for office based on promises to ameliorate those patterns, that, that, that builds in a demand for classification that will express itself in one way or another. Uh, and I'm not sure it's a healthy thing. I mean, I, in fact, I think there could be logical contradictions built into that kind of pursuit of racial equity in the sense that to the extent that identity groups, whether racial or otherwise, are uh, in fact salient and important as a feature of social organization, then those uh, patterns will produce differences in the representation of people in, in different kind, lines of human pursuit. And inevitably, there will be uh, an overrepresentation of one or another group in an underrepresentation in one or another activity, which is not necessarily a reflection of uh, a problem that needs social remedy. But to the extent that it's perceived as such, it'll call forth this whole uh, this whole apparatus. Um, it strikes me, uh, I, I realize my time is limited, that uh, Blindness to category in government action may not be the core uh, issue, that the core issue may be uh, a uh, orientation toward preferring some patterns or social outcomes over others based upon uh, racial identity of citizens. Um, and uh, I, I think uh, your, your Remarks at the end, I would say, you know, from your lips to God's ears, that we might find ourselves at a time where racial difference would be as relatively insignificant uh, as is today the Catholic-Protestant divide that was so prominent uh, not so long ago. Uh, but I don't see it happening. I, I see rather the logic of our politics as encouraging uh, racial categorization and division, uh, whether it's a part of Democratic Party electoral strategy or it's the freelance activities of various demagogues and uh, racial uh, entrepreneurs who build careers around uh, formulating our uh, social disparities in those terms. Uh, so I'll offer that as a provocation. Thanks very much. I'm sure we'll get to lots of provocative things. And uh, before Adrian speaks, I'll just uh, remind our audience, if you have any questions, you can type them in uh, into the the, the site where you're you're watching this, and we'll we'll turn to questions uh, in the not too uh, distant future. Adrian, please. Um, well, David and I went to law school together way back when, and um, I so I it's kind of exciting for me to be able to take our our old conversations over the cafeteria tables and go public with them. And and David, I just want to really commend you on what I think is a really fine, important um, book. And I want to compliment a couple of important aspects of of classified um, and outline maybe some potential points of agreement and potential disagreement with. Uh, between me and, and David and perhaps with Glenn also. So I want to tell people that this is, you know, this is an exhaustively researched account of race in the administrative state. And it gives a lot of attention to the federal state, but also and to, to the state states, to states, but also in really some really intriguing moments to local municipalities as well. And, you know, if you have any interest in, I mean, David could have written an entire book, I think, on, on firefighters who I think are mainly kind of governed by the, maybe by uh, municipalities in some ways. Um, but this is a really thorough accounting and, and meticulously researched. And also I'll say that it's kind of a fun read too. Some of the things that he uncovers are, are really quite extraordinary and fun and beautifully written. So David, I want to compliment you because you have, I think, fully embraced two central tenets of, uh, of critical race theory. So this makes me, this makes me uh, very, very happy uh, to see you coming over, over to, uh, to my side. And the first is that race is socially constructed meaning it doesn't exist in some biological vacuum. Instead, it is created. It's created by people. It's created by institutions to serve various goals and purposes. The second related point is that David tells us that race is historically contingent, meaning it does not have a single meaning, but it shifts over time. So he's really, I think, quite a meticulous recounting of how various administrative agencies designed defined and executed race over the last 60 or 70 years is fascinating. If you doubt that race is socially constructed, read this book. If you know that race is socially constructed and you want to understand better how it is, read this book. 
Um, I have one, you know, I think very minor, you know, criticism maybe of the scope of the book. David alludes uh, you know, several times, I think, in very pointed fashion and well well put um, that this book, which is about the contemporary modern uh, administrative state, is against a background of our nation's quite sordid um, uh, history with uh, with racial classifications, especially those um, involving uh, involving African Americans and and enslaved people and and descendants of slaves. And you know, it would have made it the book you know in many ways too long. But I I wish we'd seen a little bit more of the backdrop um, to get some sense of of where we're operating from from now. But again, you know minor criticism. So just to the point about race being uh, designed and defined to serve various historical purposes, David gives us a very comprehensive catalog of why administrative agencies designed race. And these include monitoring discrimination, um, sociological and other social scientific research, biomedical research, um, and diversity, right? And I'll just kind of say just a, a little bit about, about where I come down on David's take on, on, uh, on each of these. So as far as the monitoring discrimination claim, and you know, David, correct me in the Q&A if I got this wrong, but I take you to be saying that it makes some sense for us to continue to have a racial category so that we can monitor discrimination. You can't monitor it um, if, um, if, you don't, um, if you don't know that it, if, you, if you don't have some kind of criteria for, uh, for defining it and observing it. Um, as far as sociological and other social scientific research, uh, David there says, you know, these categories just are really not serving their purpose. Um, I tend to agree. You know, I think he makes, and it, a lot of people um, would agree, I think a, a real point of overlap between um, the, the so-called left and so-called right would be a category like Asian American um, really just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. A point, importantly, agreed with by, uh, by Asian Americans. Um, Biomedical research, we may, David and I may differ there. Uh, I think that the categories continue to be meaningful, if not for actual biological reasons, but sometimes as uh, proxies for access and culturally based interventions, you know, questions of why, why is it black women, even when you um, uh, uh, control for class, why do black women continue to have uh, maternal outcomes that approximate those of you know, so-called third world countries? Um, and then diversity, and you here I'd say, you know, just back to what Glenn was saying, diversity really is distinct from equity. So here David pivots from the administrative state to the higher ed sector. Um, but the the sectors that uh, that also, and not only higher ed, but also uh, the military, corporate America, all avidly defend diversity, right? Because all of the research shows that diverse teams outperform homogeneous teams. And the military and in military morale and performance requires diverse leadership for lots of reasons. For the U.S. to maintain our competitive advantages, um, in the case of universities, to follow our missions and produce global citizens and leaders, we need to know how to get along with different people. And in the strong form, we need to know how to lead them. Um, I know I've just got a little bit of time left, so I'm going to wrap up really quickly here. Uh, but David makes a really strong incommensurability claim that the way race is organized, it flattens it. And we under, we kind of understand all of these groups somehow function the same, Black, Native American, Hispanic, Asian American. They're all sort of parallel with the same kind of, kind of meaning. But he shows us that they're not at all. And some of these categories may make more sense than others. Um, some we might be able to keep with some fine tuning. Others might need to be you know, kind of radically uh, rethought. Um, I won't say he, I think you, I was going to say something about your spotlight on excluded groups, but I'm running out of time. Um, so the last thing I want to close by saying then is that, you know, the separation of race and state can sound very attractive in theory, right? Uh, but the fact of the matter is that David's book <laughs> gives us all the reasons why race remains important for the administrative state. It remains differentially important. And I think, again, he makes a compelling case. And I agree with many of, of his, his arguments about why it needs to be rethought in some contexts. Uh, but it remains very, very important. So I'll close by saying, I think you know, everyone who's interested in the race, the race in the U.S. should read the book. And David, thank you again for a book that is both provocative and meticulous. And finally, David, welcome to Critical Race Theory. <laughs> Great. Uh, thanks very much, David. Uh, I'll let you reply to both Glenn and Adrian, and I'll throw in something of, of my own to allow you to take off on your last uh, thought about the your, your dream of, uh, of a multiracial, multiethnic republic where people aren't uh, uh, engaged in this sordid business of divvying us up by race to quote uh, Chief Justice Roberts. And this also dovetails with the first question that we've gotten about, uh, you know, whether there's evidence that uh, you know, doing what you say, changing or removing the ethnic categories, the racial categories, uh, would, would uh, help solve some of the problems uh, that you've identified. Because uh, in France, for example, they don't do racial classifications, but it doesn't mean they don't have racial or ethnic tensions. 
Conversely, in Brazil, they're hypersensitive to race, even though they are this multiracial, multiethnic, you know, I think in, in Brazilian Portuguese, there's more than 100 words to describe different gradations of, of race and, and, and what have you. So anyway, I'm throwing a lot on the table. You can take it where you want to go as we as we kick off our discussion. Yeah, there's a lot. Um, but I, I think that France is actually a little bit of a cautionary example to what Glenn was referring to. My, uh, you know, uh, to use a pregnant word here, prejudice in this context is that, you know, as, a, as sort of a libertarian type, I prefer the government stay out of race uh, entirely and not have to classify people. But uh, France, is, you know, is the classic example everyone knows with eight they have two things going on there. One of which is that the government does not collect statistics, but there's also uh, a strong societal taboo against talking about race and ethnicity mm -hmm. and doing research on that because it undermines French national unity. So I think that second part is kind of silly. Like if you're an anthropologist or a sociologist, how you can't just study the French when there are <laughs> different groups around. With regard to the, even with regard to the government though, I mean, I, I, I give two examples, what, um, both involving sort of the same group of North African immigrants who are the largest minority mm -hmm. group in uh, France. One of which is that there are these issues where North Africans uh, have lower socioeconomic uh, uh, success than um, people whose ancestors have lived in France longer, but there's very little research on why and how and what to do about it because no one's keeping that data. So uh, there's no real efforts to do anything and it does seem to be causing France some problems that uh, these groups aren't as assimilating as well as they would like. Uh, the related problem is when there was a big uptick in anti-Semitism, uh, mostly from North African immigrants against other North African immigrants who were Jews, uh, it took a long time for the French government to be responsive because they didn't even have the vocabulary to talk about it. They just said, well, it's just crime and it's crime by Frenchmen against Frenchmen. So there's, you know, it's not a big, it's not a big uptick in crime in general. So what's the big deal? But of course, if your group is being targeted and you feel especially unsafe, uh, justifiably because of that it does matter you know if there's a hundred percent increase in crimes against jews you don't really care that that's only 0.5 percent of all crime in france right so, the, so that is a sort of a cautionary tale i don't think as a practical matter that we are ready to give up monitoring in that way although i would note that uh, interestingly enough this came up a few days ago when i was talking about this that when the fbi gathers hate crime statistics they do not use the crude directive 15 classifications as the only possible ways of looking at it. they do collect uh, data on hate crimes against Muslims and hate crimes against Jews and hate crimes against LGBTQ and so forth, because they recognize that if we just use, you know, the Directive 15 or census classifications, we're not going to get the whole story. So that brings me to a broader point, which is the, uh, which goes to what Adrian was talking about, which is I do think um, we're probably not getting rid of classifications entirely anytime soon, but to the extent we use them, we really have to be sensitive to what the context is. Uh, as she mentioned, I conclude that, you know, for discrimination monitoring, we could probably use some tweaking, like we should probably separate South Asians from East Asians, because mm -hmm. someone who could even imagine an Indian employer not liking Chinese and vice versa, but someone who hates Chinese probably hate, doesn't really like Japanese either. But uh, but those are probably, you know, good enough for what they're used for. But then when it comes to, say, social science research or even health disparity research, I'll see everyone, it's maybe, it's, the book has made me have trouble watching the news without yelling at the screen or yelling at my radio or whatever, because I'll see something. Governor DeSantis has released data about the educational progress of Hispanics in Florida. <laughs> I'll say, you know, and I'll say, wait a second, you have Cubans, you have, you came in, when, when Castro came into power, you have the Mario Beltliff Cubans were sort of a different demographic. You have Puerto Ricans, hundreds of thousands who've come uh, since the last hurricane. You have Mexican farm workers in central Florida. You have wealthy Venezuelans and Brazilians and Argentines who've come uh, to protect their property from uh, despoiling socialist governments. And you have illegal people uh, undocumented people from the same countries who are generally much uh, more likely to be mixed race. They all sort of mix together. And point is to sort of just average all these groups together and say, well, here's how Hispanics are doing. is actually in some ways worse than not having any data at all because it's 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 mixing such disparate groups that the uh, it's like garbage in, garbage out. You're not really learning anything. So it could, it could turn out that Hispanics overall are doing somewhat better, but there's this but Puerto Ricans in Central Florida are doing terribly. We'll never know because we don't disaggregate it. That's uh, interesting. It, it sounds like what you're saying is 
we have to be more as social scientists, more parsimonious. And so a compromise or an incremental step towards separating race and state to have is to have even more racial categories. Uh, well, you know, there's also different ways of asking uh, about it. I mean, I don't know, again, how much. The or, or, or you're talking about ethnic and national based as well. So it's not just race or, you know. Well, the, we get a lot of data from the census and the census could just and the census could ask questions very differently. And there have been proposals by various people who study this and from the anthropological or other social sciences saying, you know, maybe we should just ask people how they think of themselves. What is their primary identity? Or we should just ask about national origin with you know some uh particular <laughs> options for african-americans don't always know their national origin uh due to slavery and so forth and so on mm -hmm. there are ways of doing that but then um i think the government itself could encourage private or social or you know there's a lot of good data we get for example from pew research like they're the ones since the government doesn't collect data on jews they do these studies every decade or so about american jews that is full of really interesting stuff but we don't have that it's not just for the minority groups, I should say. You know, we have a really significant problem we've had for a long time with Appalachian Americans. Those of us who are, I'm not old enough to remember this, I'm not sure any of you are, but when the war on poverty was being sold by Lyndon Johnson, it was sold primarily by pictures and stories about people living in huts in the Appalachia, no indoor plumbing and so forth, uh, illegitimacy, alcoholism, and they still have related issues, low educational attainment, they've been hit hard by the opioid epidemic. But once again, we don't really have data about that because they're just put into the white mm -hmm. classification and they're sort of rendered invisible by that. So there has to be some way for the government to gather the data needs to gather for certain purposes, but also encourage a much richer uh, mm -hmm. uh, version of the data for social science yeah. and medical research and so forth. Yeah, yeah. You have something on that, Adrian? Uh, no, I just, I was wondering if, could we, um, can we take Tina's question? Uh, sure, sure. Tina says, uh, how about personal responsibility? Uh, black women have poor birth outcomes because of their personal choices, like being uh, overweight. I'm a black woman and anyone with two eyes can see that. I think that goes to some of the uh, uh, medical decision making yeah. and, and, you know, the yeah. disparate impact on, you know, it's not necessarily yeah. that we have bad health outcomes by race because doctors are racist right. and don't, right. don't treat black women well or something right. like that. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I think Tina may be a ringer for me. I appreciate the opportunity <laughs> to elaborate a point I had to sort of skip over, in fact. So, you know, Tina, you're right. I mean, it's, obesity is an American you know, epidemic, and I think it disproportionately um, affects African-Americans, but it is an American epidemic. Let's be really, really clear. Um, and this is exactly why we need to monitor race, because I'm going to tell you some of the things that people have found, um, that even when you look at um, Black women who have, um, who have outstanding health, professional black women of outstanding health, um, um, you know, are, are incredibly fit, have immaculate diets. They still have very poor birthing outcomes. And part of what the studies have shown is because they are under immense stress, right? And for a lot of it's attributed to the stress of racism and sexism. And, um, um, and another piece of it as well, it's a stu some studies show that doctors don't listen to black women when black women are in distress. So I only need to commend to you Serena Williams, right? So Serena Williams, who I, I think she's probably one of the most fit people in the country. Her diet is exceptional. And yet when she went to have her baby, she almost died. You know, she I can't remember exactly what the medical, um, uh, the medical um, uh, condition was, but she couldn't get the doctors to listen to her. She finally did because she's Serena Williams. I think she called some advocates in and her life in the end, in the end was saved. But to me, this is exactly why we need this kind of research. And I think the doctors beginning to assess and detect that stress was responsible, or at least it was a, at least it was a, a meaningful contributing factor to those poor birthing outcomes um, was helpful. Now, Tina, you might say, no, it wasn't, no, it wasn't. But then you're just denying what the medical you know, profession uh, has, has been finding. So, and David, I don't know if that makes you kind of say, well, maybe it makes some sense then to kind of collect that, collect and use that data in, um, in the medical context and biomedical research. There's a related question that I'll, that I'll throw into that as well, David, a question from Lou about uh, uh, genomic classifications that can be significant uh, for targeted cancer treatments and, and other things. And you're, in your chapter on the FDA and other things, you, you talk about things like the COVID, which does not uh, uh, have you know, racial differences, but uh, you know, uh, Tay-Sachs disease, and there, there are certain things that, that do 
react differently in different ethnicities or, or race or what have you. But so how do you treat it where uh, in, in, in legitimate uh, scientific or medical things to the extent that there is um, uh, differences uh, genomically and, and the fact that we have more uh, answers based on Ancestry.com about things like that? I think Glenn had wanted to jump in, so let me let him do that. Uh, no, I, I was going to challenge Adrian to a little bit to say stress is stress. I mean, women in stress have bad birth outcomes or worse birth outcomes. They should be attended to. I'm not sure what race has to do with it. There's an intervening hypothesis which appropriates a, an account, a narrative about a social organization that says the stress in Black women is due to racism implicitly. That And, and I was going to challenge that assumption. I don't know that that's true. I think what we're concerned about mm -hmm. is health outcomes for people. Not, not for races of people. And I, I think mm. it remains to be seen the role that race plays. I mean, you could say this in a lot of things. You could say, I would say, George Floyd and Derek Chauvin is only a racial event because mm -hmm. we make it so. What I see is a bad cop and a, and a guy that's in a situation and state force is used and it produces a bad outcome. We decide that it's a racial outcome. And I think that decision can be questioned often. Yeah, I think, well, you know, so many doctors are really focused on trying to figure out what it is that's producing these outcomes. And you might say, you know, we can look at lots and lots of factors. And we look at, you know, where people live. We look at all these other factors that produce health outcomes. You might say, look at every factor, but don't look. We look at, you know, look at age. We look at gender. We look at, you know, where people live, whether they exercise. But you, you would say, don't look at race, which to me just doesn't make any sense. And of course, the intervention is, you know, if you know that black women are, are especially I'm going to focus here on professional black women who are, you know, by and large, really you know, are taking care of themselves and everything, then you begin to try to figure out how can you then work with patients to ameliorate stress that may be race and, and sex based. I mean, to me, that seems really straightforward. Why wouldn't you look at the whole array of things that are influencing medical outcomes? So let, let, so let me just, so my take on this, whatever it's worth, uh, without being an expert on maternal, you know, birth and all this, <laughs> is that- You it, have more shoulder than I do, so uh, I- <laughs> I do this thing about maternal stress, yes. Uh, uh, the last baby was born on the bathroom floor, so that was, uh, <laughs> that was very stressful. Um, at home, uh, I'm not on purpose. Uh, oh, but not on purpose. Not on purpose. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, uh, you know. So there's, you know, I think the one thing we have to be aware of, you know, it's an interesting conundrum because if we accept the hypothesis true that black women are faced with um, doctors not treating them as well and as serious, taking them as seriously as other people, even if we accept that as true, the more, you know, there's this conundrum because on the one hand, you could say, well, let's emphasize that more so that doctors will be aware of it and compensate. But on the other hand, the more you make them aware of it, the more the less likely they are to ever stop doing it to begin with because they keep seeing their patients as well. This is a black woman. I'm, I'm gonna, because it was her patient. Okay, I, I'm gonna can I push back Ilya? Sure. <laughs> okay. So so David, where's the most southern place you taught? Is it Virginia or did you teach in a more southern place than that? Uh, I think it's just Virginia. <laughs> Virginia. Okay. What about Northern you, Virginia? Not really the South, I have to say. Oh, oh Virginia's the South. <laughs> not where Northern you teach, Virginia. but Virginia. Yeah, Northern Virginia's not. Yeah. Glenn, Glenn, where's the most Southern place you've taught? <laughs> Northwestern University. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, I. <laughs> I've taught at Ole Miss. <laughs> you, you taught Ole Miss. Okay. So you, you, Ilya, you and I. So I taught for seven years at University of North Carolina. Um, but even more importantly, I taught for uh, two semesters at University of Alabama. I taught there one semester and I loved it so much when they invited me back several years later, I went back again. But here's here's what I want to say. And I'm not a doctor or anything, but I was a law professor trying to teach my students. And I realized at some point that the, you know, this is the first time I taught students who had who held deep religious identities, deep Christian religious identities. Right. First time I'd ever taught large groups of them. And we were struggling to kind of hear each other. Right. And in such a way that a doctor might not be hearing, literally hearing a black patient. So what I did is I tried to focus, right? When a student started talking to me and they were saying things that, you know, about, you know, God and the Bible and everything in the law school classroom, I found, I just said to myself, Adrian, you know, this is not something that's familiar to you and let's focus. Let's really, really listen. And it, guess what? did make a difference. It made a huge difference in the dynamics of the classroom, in my ability to engage with them, them feeling hurt, my feeling hurt. If I can do that as a law professor, I certainly feel that doctors, by being aware, you know, here's a black patient, am I maybe being a little bit less, um, a little bit less patient with her, or am I maybe being a little bit more brusque than I should be? I don't understand why people can't, can't also do that. We call it motivated listening. 
It's in the uh, Ilya. I saw an appointment at our business school. It's in the business literature. <laughs> I, I have I have more. I like to. I love to continue this with Egypt. I want to get to that yeah. other question. Yeah, so, let's um, let's take it back to the to the issue of racial classification because you know doctors' bedside manner or professors being better communicators or listeners. That's not necessarily a racial or ethnic classification yeah, issue. It's, it's getting a little bit outside my expertise. But let's, let's bring it back to uh, places where. Uh, racial classifications may be useful. Uh, for example, crime statistics. So a question from Anna. Uh, in our criminal justice system, how would we track demographics? Or David, you mentioned France when it's Frenchman on Frenchman crime. Uh, is that, you know, it's hard to differentiate. And, you know, if there's different rates of offending or victimization among different communities, uh, you know, is, isn't it useful to, to have uh, racial classifications for purposes like that? Uh, that I haven't, I didn't really address crime in, uh, the book. And it's a very interesting question that I have to admittedly haven't really thought much about. Um, I do think, you know, we have to consistently balance, you know, there, there's a concern we just said in medicine is a concern in crime. On the one hand, we want to look for disparities and we want to, um, make sure that, you know, be able to study them and maybe even so, sometimes it's, it's even, well, wow, we looked, there's no, you know, if you believe Ron Fryer, there's no disparity, at least in shooting. So maybe that's good news, right? So sometimes that's actually helpful to say that maybe we could focus our efforts on, but there is some problem with violence at the lower level. So maybe we need to focus there, but there's always this um, conundrum that uh, you have to balance that between with two things. First, how useful are the actual statistics? So just when we get to medicine, for example, when you, to the extent we the question about genomics, um, there are there is some correlation between being of African descent and certain kinds of diseases and certain things. But two issues. First of all, we don't really know because of the mixtures of populations we have for African Americans whether when we see that we're seeing a really high rate of. Uh, differentiation from one like tribal group that happened to come from somewhere. It doesn't really apply to all African-Americans. And we also have these differences, these even broader differences in the African-American population. Many Somalis and Ethiopians are more closely related genetically to Arabs and Jews and other Middle Eastern populations. And if you're treating them, oh, well, we have this African-American data, then you're treating them wrong, basically, even if the data turned out to be correct for the overall African-American population. So you have that one problem. The second problem um, is that you have to balance in every case the extent to which you want to differentiate populations. Uh, you want I'm, it may be very important in medicine, may be very important in criminal justice. But the less you do it, I always tell people, you know, I give talks on this, and I'm always, you know, thinking that some people are going to say. Well, what does a white guy know about racial classification? Although, of course, white is a racial classification as well. And I say, you know, 60 years ago, speaking of 60 years ago, if I was giving this talk, you'd see me, you'd see my last name. So there's a Jewish guy up there giving a talk. Even people who weren't anti-Semitic, they would just notice those ethnic differences among whites that have, they still exist to some extent, but they just, we don't notice them anymore because there's been much more intermixing and- I'm gonna, I'm gonna just interrupt there, David, to say that people on the coasts don't notice them anymore. I am in the Midwest. Yeah. I am in St. Louis. <laughs> people still notice religious differences and, and Jewish people here. It is, and coming from the coast, it alarmed me a little bit. So I'm just letting you know, it's alive and well. Interesting. Well, I do. I was somewhere where they where I asked about what, what a good restaurant to eat. And they said there's an Italian place down the block. <laughs> so someone, so it's still, even the pronunciation of Italian hasn't quite uh, uh, made, it, made it everywhere in the, in the area. But yeah, so, but anyway, it's certainly less prominent than it would have been uh, in, in in decades ago, and we to some we of course so there's this there is this um, I sometimes close my talks, but there is this uh, conundrum here where we have on the one hand we want uh, to keep track of statistics in some regard, maybe not exactly the way we're doing it now, maybe it needs to be broader in some cases now or in others, abolished entirely in some others, but we want to keep it to some extent to help uh, address social disparities and racism and. Uh, so forth, and the conflicting desire to, um, you know, have a multiracial, multiethnic, singular American identity. And the one thing that I will say, so I think you know, one could be somewhere on the spectrum there. And I could we could debate back and forth. The one thing that I think is a little bit out off the off the spectrum of where I'm comfortable with is that there's a whole group of academics, mostly sociologists. If you Google the phrase "white racial consciousness." 
that uh, you would think you're getting like David Duke and whatnot, but you actually wind up getting a lot of left-wing, so anti-racist, as they call themselves, sociologists, who say we need to make white people more conscious of their whiteness, make them identify more, not as Catholics, not as Rotarians, not as athletes, wherever they might, uh, make them understand themselves as white. That way they'll recognize their privilege and that way they'll become allies in anti-racism. And I just think that that is really off the charts because first, you know, my instincts would be, no, if you make people think of themselves more as being a member of one group as opposed to other, they're not gonna use that knowledge to help some other group they're gonna to want to be selfish like people generally are and help their own group. But also there's actual social science data on this and not to my surprise, consistent with my instincts, the more people think of themselves as being white people, the more strongly they have a white identity, the more racist they tend to be. Right, the horseshoe theory where it's, you know, have the memes that you have, in, was this said by a KKK member or an you know, ultra woke anti-racist, right? But David, isn't that in the end an empirical question? Yeah, I mean, I mean, don't we need to gather some data on that? Because it seems to me that those are those are both those can both be true, right? That you have people with strong white identities who are white nationalists and horrible anti-Semites and everything else, but also you know people who are trying to say, you know, I, I want to tell you, you know, I'm I'm white and I'm being trying to be thoughtful about race and racism and my role in it. it seems to me that both of those could be true, which would go back to your point about collecting data. And doing right. I, mean, I think the data generally show, I mean, the thing is the people who are writing this stuff, frankly, are living generally in university environments where the white people they know who have this white identity are people who say, oh my God, you know, I have white privilege and this and that. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, I grew up in really uh, sort of white racist yeah. neighborhood, I would say, as a kid, I would say, well, those people, you know, the more you make them think of themselves as white, that's not going to be a good outcome. They're not uh, likely to be really enlightened yeah. and decide that they're going to, well, you know, I during, during Black Lives Matter and so forth. I, I want to push back a little bit because in my in our sociology department here at Washington University, we've got some um, some really sociologists doing really really great work on on um, uh, sort of what what we might call more white racist identities as well. Really important uh, work on it. So I want to push back that they're only doing work on people who they know. So that that's a small point, but. Yeah, no, I wasn't meaning to apply. They don't. Okay, work go, on that. Go. People they actually know personally. But anyway, go ahead, go ahead. Go. Sorry, Glenn, you had something. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I was going to talk about crime statistics and say, uh, you know, watch out, watch out, because uh, if you get into the racialized crime parsing business, somebody's going to start counting how many black criminals victimize white people. And that's not a count that you really want to undertake. Um, so, I, I mean, I was going to say there's and I was also going to say there are two different levels of conversation. One of them is polite conversation that we all have in public. And the other is sub rosa conversation where people say what they really think. And by definition, you're not going to get data on sub rosa conversation. So any discussion of the subtext of the of the, you know, where does the support for certain kinds of right wing politics come from? Uh, would, would have to uh, take that on board, take on board the fact that people are not necessarily telling us what what they think. Well, but Glenn, you, but you agree with the, the enterprise of sociology. Uh, yeah, I understand its limits as well. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and I mean, I, I don't think everything's empirical. I, I think some things mm -hmm. are, are matters of principle and some things are matters of common sense. Hmm. If, if we go beyond uh, uh, data, the, we've been discussing data and statistics where it can be useful, uh, what about uh, classifications that are then, uh, you know, meant to uh, go into public policy as remedies for past uh, oppression? And uh, whether that's uh, small business set-asides, whether it's racial preferences in higher education, mm -hmm. is the problem the classifications or the problem that they don't get at uh, what's actually targeted, whether you call that uh, remedying past oppression or diversity, as, of course, we've been talking about only because uh, Justice Powell in the Bakke case in 1979 mm -hmm. that the Supreme Court will be revisiting uh, this fall in the Harvard Affirmative Action case uh, has been based on. But is is it, is it that we're using the classifications the wrong way or asking the wrong questions? So, for example, uh, if the if the problem is people being uh, 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 oppressed, then then we should be targeting, as you wrote about in your book, the distinction between uh, American descendants of slaves, the Eidos category versus other uh, black people or Indian tribes, uh, or for that matter, people who are disadvantaged socioeconomically? Um, is, it, is it that we're kind of asking the wrong questions or using classifications in a very crude manner that doesn't uh, achieve the sorts of goals that even those with 
purely good uh, intentions to improve society have. Oh, look, the classifications in this context were historically made primarily, not exclusively, but primarily, overwhelmingly, with the intent that, look, we've had the Civil Rights Act, we have now laws requiring equal treatment, but there's been this historical exclusion of African-Americans from education, from uh, being able to get government contracts and so forth, that we want to redress that exclusion. Now, you could argue, uh, and one could have a whole separate book and debate, and there have been plenty, of course, on whether the right remedy is to then have racial consciousness to begin with. But if we accept that as the premise of the underlying rationale primarily for what we were doing, uh, it made sense back in the 70s when we had a primarily black-white binary and there weren't a lot of African immigrants and Caribbean immigrants in the United States to do it the way we were doing it. The problem is that no one was really anticipating that we'd have massive immigration from Latin America, from Asia, uh, and from Africa, for that matter. I, I had no idea until I wrote the book that 10% of African-Americans in the United States were born in a foreign country. No idea. I would have guessed 2 to 5%. And I would have thought years. it was more, actually. Okay. That, does that also include people born in the Caribbean? Yeah, oh, yeah, but it does, but it does not include their children and grandchildren. So ah, if they gotcha. have their families, okay. it would be higher. So then we wound up in a situation with government contracting where you get the exact same preference if you are an Indian engineer who came to Silicon Valley and has been here five years, you become a citizen, you're eligible for the preference just as much as if you're a descendant of slaves and your ancestors were in Jim Crow, you went to inner city public schools and so forth, which doesn't make any sense given the actual policy rationale. Uh, similarly with higher education, arguably, and this is a little bit more controversial, but arguably if, if those are the people you were trying to assist primarily, we know places like Harvard, a very large percentage of the African-American students who benefit from preferences are immigrants or their children, or often by people who have biracial parents, uh, well, not by, you know, two parents, one black parent, one white parent who have higher overall socioeconomic uh, indicators in the black population as a whole. And, you know, that's a question that's been controversial, uh, you know, across the ideological spectrum. There have been like black students protesting in Harvard and Cornell saying, hey, we're the people who this was meant for, where my, my grandparents suffered under Jim Crow, why is the child of the Nigerian ambassador getting a slot here <laughs> instead? So uh, so you can argue on the principal basis whether we should have these or not, but even if you get past that, say, okay, we agree with the, with the impetus for this, I don't know that given the crude classifications we're using that we're actually achieving that goal either. I have a thought, but I wanna see if Glenn wants to say something first. Well, what I want to say is we're in the year 2022 as we speak, and the Affirmative Action in Higher Education Project, whether it's ADOS or just Black in some more African-American sense, is a half century old. And we just need to ask ourselves a simple question. Is this the business we want to be in 50 years from now? Uh, and I, I don't want to parse categories with David. Uh, I want to stay focused on the prospect that this project is misguided and the critique needs to not be not about instrumentality it needs to be about what public purposes are um i want, so I want to squeeze can in I, Martha, Ilya, Martha. can i just jump in real quick can i real quick. so i just in terms of what david was saying about the you know like the caribbean um uh small business, I, I would say it really does make a difference what you think the rationale is here. Because if you think the rationale is, um, um, you know, that they encountered barriers due to race once they get here, it makes sense, right? If you think the rationale is repressed human or cultural capital from being here for a long time, then you're absolutely right. It doesn't make sense. But I just want to say one more thing in terms of, is this the business we want to be in at all? You know, Glenn, to me, the mission of universities, especially universities like where you and I teach, is to produce the next generation of people who are going to be global leaders. And we all know that you cannot do that from a homogeneous environment, that being exposed to different kinds of people and learning to get along with different kinds of people is part of the university mission. And we always tell our students, you're going to go out and you're going to be, whether you're running your local PTA or you are the next ambassador from Nigeria, whatever it is, you're going to be working in diverse groups and we will be failing you if we don't teach you how to do that. And real quick, we have international banks, right, that have skepticism about hiring sometimes from the U.S. because they say we're not that confident sometimes that Americans have the skills 
right? Of being able to really deal, uh, deal depthly with all the different kinds of clients that we have. And so then we have to show them that our students in fact have that. So to me, we may have a different view of what the, the, the mission of universities is. Now, now I'm going to go empirical on you and ask you <laughs> for evidence that what we're doing on campuses is actually creating meaningful competency at cross-racial or intercultural uh, intercourse. And I'll just tell one anecdote very quickly. Mm -hmm. I taught a seminar on free inquiry to a group of kids who happened all to be white. It wasn't about race. Mm -hmm. In the course of the, my teaching, the question, do you take any courses in the Africana Studies Department came up and to a person, they said no. And one said, we're discouraged as white students from taking courses in the Africana Studies Department because when we get into heated exchanges of ideas, uh, black students are complaining about being burdened by having to explain the realities of racial discrimination in America to white kids. Well, that's ridiculous. Now, that's uh, ridiculous. Of course, of course it is. It's also uh, uh, symptomatic of, of the uh, overemphasis on racial identity as the framework for valuing human diversity. It's not about race. Race is an epiphenomenon. It's about class, it's about culture, it's about mm -hmm. religion, it's about politics, uh, it's about am I gay, but it's not about the color of my skin. I think it's about all of those things, but I just want to note here, I heard Glenn Lowry calling for more diversity in the African American <laughs> Studies classroom. I, I, I got him on record saying that. All right. Uh, uh, we've come to the bottom of the hour. I've been given dispensation to go a few minutes over, and I do want to real quick, David, just you, uh, touch on one thing that we really haven't much, uh, and that's the multiracial uh, category. Uh, and in your introduction, this is one of many questions that you pose or hypotheticals or conundrums. And by the way, you, if you haven't published your introduction by itself, you should throw that up somewhere because it's a great enticement for the rest of your book. I mean, I read the intro and I was just salivating to, to learn uh, even more. So definitely you know, publicize that as a feature in a magazine. I, I don't know, something like that. It's a great thing. But uh, you, you ask, how should bi and multiracial people be classified? And, you know, certain hypotheticals. Should that, if, if a parent who identifies as black, a white identified partner have a child, child checks one box, should the government classify, you know, all of these little things that you can think of. And what about when they go on uh, ancestry.com and find their, all of these different things. So as we achieve that uh, or go closer towards that multiracial nirvana that you spoke at at the outset, uh, how does, you know, how, do, how does this uh, deal with that new reality? So uh, I'll try to keep this brief because that's a very loaded lo lo question. But um, until 1997, you weren't allowed to check more than one box at all. And even though Hispanic was an ethnicity, you actually had that was listed with the races. You could only be Hispanic. They changed it in 1997 at the behest of multiracial activists who said that this is not right. We should be able to check more than we want to check multiracial. And also, by the way, it doesn't make sense if Hispanic is an ethnicity to keep it with the race boxes. So they moved Hispanic over. They did not create a multiracial category because traditional civil rights groups objected on, you know, for two basic reasons. One was purely self-interest. We don't want to lose constituents, right? The fewer people think of themselves as Hispanic or Black or Asian, the fewer people are going to join those groups. But they also have the pragmatic reason if you're trying to prove voting discrimination uh, or other kinds of discrimination, the fewer people serve your statistical baseline, the harder it is to prove. So they, the compromise was you could check more than one box. The weird thing about it, though, was once the publicity had died down, the civil rights groups then lobbied internally inside the bureaucracy to get it to be the case everywhere except education now if you check more than one box they assign you to one box and there's a hierarchy so if you're black and anything else you're black if you're asian and black you're black if you're asian and white you're white so if you're white and anything you're not white if you're black and anything you're black and then uh it, otherwise it's in the middle uh so <laughs> Um, but, but but no Cablin Asian for Tiger Woods. There's no Cablin Asian, but right. uh, but the other aspect of that, which I just touch on briefly, is that no one, if you are one eighth this, that, the other thing, you could check whatever you want. And not only could you check it, you would not really be engaging in any kind of fraud because what because there's no rules about what percent you have to be. So Spanish, it says, uh, Hispanic says you have to be of Spanish origin or culture. I talk about a case where someone says they're. Uh, descended of Spanish Jews that was that were kicked out of Spain in 1492, and court said the agency said, "Yep, you're Hispanic." So we have this 
phenomenon, I'll close with this, of identity entrepreneurs, people who may live their life as a generic white person, let's say, but when it comes time to apply for government contracts or for education, they're now Hispanic or Black or American Indian or whatnot. And that uh, we, we haven't had nearly as much exaggeration and cheating as you might expect, but I would think that as we get more and more people who are more have more and more mixtures, and this will become an increasing problem of trying to keep everything straight. Okay, we have to leave it there. Thanks so much to David, Glenn, and Adrian for such an insightful and timely conversation. Uh, before we close, I'd like to invite our public audience to browse the Manhattan Institute's research, subscribe to our newsletters. If you're able, please also consider supporting the Institute at the link you see below. MI is a nonprofit, and our work depends on support from people like you. Thanks very much. We're adjourned. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.